Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Hi, I'm Louise and this is Caitlin. She's one next week. Hi, I'm Olivia. I'm seven and I like fashion. Hi, I'm Eleanor. I'm eight and I love horses and horses. Hello, I am Willow and I love cooling. Hi, I'm Stu, I'm 42 and I like sleeping. <laughs> Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honour and sing for joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths.
We have so much to thank God for, and we have so much to ask Him for, and we're going to do that in just a moment. Uh, Dave Seward is going to lead us in prayer, but just before that, I need to pass on the sad news that you may not all have heard about yet, and that's that Enid Wilcox, one of our church members, died on Friday morning. Dave had already recorded his prayer uh, when that happened, and so after Dave leads us in prayer, I will uh, continue in prayer, particularly for Enid's family. So let's pray together, and first, uh, Dave is going to lead us. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have so much to praise and worship you for. When we look at your creation, the heavens and the earth, and everything on the earth, we marvel at your goodness to us. Who are we that God is mindful of us, that he even delights in his people and gives his people the victory? And yet even more than that, that he is willing to give up his Son, our Lord Jesus, who gave up his glory to come to this earth and live amongst men, give up his life to die a cruel death, that for whoever believes in him, may be saved from the consequences of their sins, from death and hell. We thank you, Father, that you are well pleased with your Son, and that you raised him from the dead, and that he is now seated at your right hand in glory. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us in so many ways, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We thank you, and are humble that you chose us to be holy and blameless in your sight, not through anything we have done or earned, but solely through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Not only chosen, but predestined for adoption into your family through our Lord and Saviour, that you have showed us with grace freely given and forgiven our sins, such that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus according to the riches of God's grace. We thank you for your gospel of salvation to all who believe. We thank you we have been predestined according to your will and plan, and that we can be assured that you are working at your plan, no matter what our day-to-day -day circumstances may be. We thank you that we have your word, the Bible, which for those who believe the message of truth are marked with the Holy Spirit who is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until redemption for his glory. Lord, we would bring our prayers and petitions to you, the specific needs of our fellowship at this time. Some may feel isolated and lonely, others may feel anxious and fearful. Lord, we would cast all our cares on you, who knows everything about us and will not allow us to suffer more than we can bear. Lord, we would remember those in hospital and those who have hospital appointments over the coming weeks. For Glennis, for Carol, for Annette and Les, and June's niece, for Martin and others. Lord, be with them especially over the coming days and weeks. Restore them to health that they may give you all the praise and glory. Lord, we also pray for members who have concerns about unemployment the uncertainty around jobs and careers at this time. For those who are seeking employment, for those who have, work, have to work in difficult and high-risk areas, Lord, be near them. Keep them safe and reassure them of your goodness and that you are in control of all things. We thank you for your answered prayer for Stuart regarding his employment and Ola's flexible working arrangements. Lord, we pray in particular for your people, as Paul prayed, that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray that being rooted and established in love, that we may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and that to know this love that suppresses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that, would, that we would know him better, that we would be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for those who believe. We pray all these things for God's glory and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we also pray all these things, particularly for the family of Enid Wilcox today, as they mourn this sudden loss. We ask that you will comfort them with these truths that we've just been thinking about in prayer. We think especially of John and Frida, Steve and Cheryl, Abby, Emily, Grace, and Isaac, and the rest of the family who may not be known to all of us, but we bring them to you. And we thank you that Enid is with you today. Through your saving grace, she was in Christ, and now she is with Christ. We thank you that her mind is restored better than it ever was before. We thank you that today Enid is free to praise you fully in your presence, without any hindrances of weakness or sin. We pray for Enid's family, that you will help each of them to find their own comfort and hope in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. The Bible passage we're going to be looking at a little bit later on this morning is going to tell us that we are to speak to one another using songs and music. Now, there's nothing better we can sing about than the story of how God came to save us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn a new song this morning that tells the story of God's work in history through His Son, Jesus, and through His Holy Spirit. So we'll uh, be singing this song again at the end, but we're going to uh, make an attempt to learn it now as it's uh, played for us. So the song is King of Kings. I hope that you're able to join in with it.
Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 3 down to verse 20. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. And this part of God's Word is about pleasing the Lord. If we've been reading this letter from the beginning, we already know that we absolutely cannot please the Lord in the sense of earning a place in His family. We could never do enough to deserve His forgiveness. Our very best efforts do not entitle us to His love. 
God's love and forgiveness are freely given. They are gracious gifts. We receive those gifts simply by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. He earned those gifts for us. God's gifts are free to us, but they cost God a massive price. God the Son died on the cross to pay for the things we get for free. He paid the price for our sin to be forgiven, and now as we come and trust in Him, He delivers God's love and forgiveness to us. When we trust in Jesus, we've heard earlier in this letter, when we trust in Him as our only hope, we receive a new identity in Christ. God delights in us. He rejoices over us as His rescued, washed clean children. That truth has been set out in detail in chapters 1 to 3 of this letter. Chapters 4 to 6, then, are written to people who do trust in Jesus, people who are in Christ. So why in this passage are we called to find out what pleases the Lord? That implies, doesn't it, it's possible for God's eternally loved graciously accepted children to live in ways that do not please him. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul told these Ephesian Christians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. That sets it out very clearly for us. As Christians, we have been sealed for the day of redemption. When something is sealed, it's secure. Our salvation has been secured by Jesus on the cross. And chapter 1 told us the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We are on our way to enjoying God's presence forever in His new heaven and earth. That is our inheritance. But this verse also says it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the way we live. To grieve someone is to cause them sorrow or injury. It's the opposite of pleasing them. So just to be clear, as clear as we can from the beginning, as we come to this passage... We are not being told how to earn our salvation. But we are being told the way that we live matters. As God's dearly loved children, it is possible for our lives to please Him or to grieve Him. And if we truly love Him, we will want to please Him. Not so that we can earn his favor, but because we have his favor. And this passage gives us three instructions on how to please the Lord with our lives. It tells us, don't play with sin. It tells us, commit to the light. And it tells us to sing the truth. We're going to see that pleasing God is not only about what we do and don't do, our emotions and our enthusiasm matter in this as well. The first instruction comes in verses 3 to 7. As God's dearly loved children who love to please Him, don't play with sin. It's not for God's people. In the passage Steve dealt with last week, there was a very strong emphasis on putting off sinful ways of life. Now that we belong to Christ, sin just doesn't suit us anymore. And here, verses 3 to 7 are concerned with those same sins. So, what is new here? What's new is the little phrase in verse 3, not even a hint. 
Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Paul knows what you and I are like. He knows all about the little negotiations that go on in our heads and in our hearts. When you and I are told we need to put off sin, we all agree wholeheartedly. Oh yes, sin's bad. It's terrible. We need to put it off. And I am, definitely. No doubt about it. But I might just, you know, look into it now and again. Nothing serious. I'm not really going to do it anymore. But it's a bit much to turn from it completely. Paul knows all of us have a tendency to play with sin, to toy around with it. For example, someone has said that as Christians, we can make a kind of deal with the people who produce films and TV shows. And the deal is, we won't do the sin ourselves, but if you put it up on the screen for us, We'll watch other people doing it. That's the kind of attitude Paul is calling us out for here. When he says, among you there must not be even a hint of sin. When it comes to putting off sinful ways, Paul is saying, don't be half-hearted. Don't have the kind of attitude that thinks, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? If you want to have a tidy garden, you don't say to yourself, how many weeds can I allow in my garden and still have it qualify as being a tidy garden? We wouldn't deal with weeds in our garden that way. And this passage is calling us not to deal with sin in our lives that way. So when it comes to internet sin, Maybe the challenge is, don't put that accountability software on all of your devices except one. Don't set the filters so you can still get around them if you really, really, really want to. That's just hedging our bets. Then in your relationships with people you're not married to, don't say, I'll allow myself to be flirtatious with this person, but of course I'll stop short of actually committing adultery with them. How might we play with greed in our lives? Well, what about the habit many of us probably have? The habit of browsing through shops or websites that are full of better clothes and better cars and better houses and better tech than the stuff we already have. Mightn't that qualify as an attempt to indulge our greed without officially being greedy? In verse 4, Paul mentions obscenity foolish talk and coarse joking. Commentators on this tell us this is probably referring to the kind of entertainment that went on at pagan banquets. Foolish talk in this context probably means drunken talk. So this is touching on the kind of social events you and I get involved in. Can we really be in situations where everyone else is sinning with gusto and it's not affecting us? Is that really possible? And I'm quite sure this is not limited to the specific sins that are mentioned just in these verses. Paul is not saying don't play around with the sins of impurity and greed, but it's okay to toy with bitterness it's okay to toy around with deceit. Now, I'm sure the sins that are mentioned in verses 3 and 4 
are intended to be representative of all sin, including the sins that were mentioned at the end of chapter 4. We all have particular sins that we tend to tolerate, and they're not the same for all of us. Some of us who would never dream of going on a porn site, well, we might actually be pretty relaxed about passing on a juicy bit of slander about someone. Or we might make a habit of cuddling our grievances, stroking our hurt feelings, all the while telling ourselves, I'd never actually take revenge on that person. I'm just thinking about it. We all have our own particular sins that we're prone to toy with. But we're not to get comfortable dabbling in any sin. And here's why. It's because all sin is serious. It's not for men and women who belong to Christ. In verse 3, Paul says, sin is improper for God's holy people. In verse 4, he says, it is out of place for us. Who is sin for? Who does sin fit? It fits those who are under God's wrath. People whose lives are given up to it. Verse 5 says, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So why on earth would I want to play with stuff that takes people to hell? Why would you want to play with it? Instead of tiptoeing around the edges of sin... Don't we want to forsake it completely? It's not for us. If we insist on playing with it, if we're determined to keep a little compartment for it in our lives, then sooner or later we have to ask, do we really know and love Christ at all? Now, I need to be clear, I'm not talking here about the times we lose a battle with sin, when we fail in some situation of temptation. It's one thing to lose a battle without being committed to a, while well, we're committed to a lifelong war. But these verses are about something different. What we're being warned about here is letting ourselves have a tolerance for sin getting comfortable with sin, having its foot in the door of our hearts and our lives. Now, the Bible tells us that this side of heaven, none of us are going to achieve sinless perfection. We will all have to fight sin until we get to heaven. But for God's sake, let's not decide to play with it instead of battling it. Not only does sin grieve and displease the God who loves us, it's a miserable way to live when we decide we're going to toy with it. To live half convinced sin is poison for us, but still not to be totally committed to fighting it and leaving it behind. Here's what we're called to instead. Not to play with sin, but to commit to the light. We were saved to shine in the darkness. Verse 8. For you were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Sin used to be natural for us. We were darkness, Paul says. We lived outside of God's light, 
Our hearts were dark. But we're different people now in Christ. And it's not just that we believe different things. A supernatural change has happened. God himself has made us alive with Christ. We've been brought into the kingdom of light. That's what's truly natural for us now. Obedience to God fits us like water fits a fish. Or like a tree fits a monkey. Pleasing God is our natural habitat now. Sin doesn't suit us anymore, but virtue does. Verse 9 mentions goodness, righteousness, and truth. You and I please the Lord when we do and say things that are good, righteous, and true. So instead of playing with sin, let's throw ourselves wholeheartedly into these things. Because here is our calling as God's people. Here's what we were saved for. We were saved to live lives so full of God's light that just by being who we are, we expose sin and darkness for what they are. Empty, hopeless, and lifeless. One writer says that in the end, sin yields no profit and has no point. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem about society that is given up to darkness and sin. He called that poem the wasteland. The end result of sin is dust and ashes. Waste. Verse 11 speaks about the fruitless deeds of darkness. And in contrast to that fruitlessness, verse 9 says we're to pursue lives full of the fruit of the light. Full of the purity and the brightness that comes when we live to please the Lord. When you and I commit to a life like that, our lives will begin to expose the emptiness of a life given over to sin. You see that in verse 11 have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, this is not talking about exposing a particular person's particular sin. It's not about pointing the finger at someone. This is saying, as you and I commit to living as children of light, we will expose the fact that a life of sin is a dark sad imitation of what life could be. That truth will be exposed to people as they look at us. We won't have to point our finger at their specific sin. Our lives will be little beacons of light showing there's something much better than sin. Goodness, righteousness, and truth are better. But if you and I play around with sin, we're not going to expose that reality at all. We'll just blend in with the darkness around us. We'll be no good for anyone. But our mission is to be good for others. Our lives are to expose the emptiness of sin, but not only that. Paul goes on to say, as we commit to lives of light... God will use us in his work of transforming the lives of others. That comes out in the next verses. In verse 12, Paul says, It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. I think the point there is, what Paul is about to say applies even to lives that are the most far gone in sin. Lives that include sin we can barely talk about. Even the most depraved lives can be transformed by the light. Look at verse 13. 
Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Those verses seem complicated, but what they're saying is the light of Christ can bring to life people who are dead in sin. Back in chapter 2, Paul said that's exactly what happened to us. It's Christ who brings the spiritually dead to life. But he includes us in his work. That's why we are called to display God's light in our lives. Not just to expose sin, but to attract people to the light. So they will be transformed by Christ and shine for him as well. Verse 13 says, everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So then, verse 15, with this in mind, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Be careful. Be wise. Understand the life God calls us to. Because you were saved to shine in the darkness. The world needs you to shine with God's light. Will everyone notice? Will everyone care? If they do notice, no. The New Testament is very open about that. Plenty of people will be oblivious. Or they might even be angry and resentful when our lives shine. But some will begin to see the emptiness of life without God. Some will be drawn to Christ. And they will become children of light. That's one good reason we don't play with sin. That's one good reason we commit wholeheartedly to the light. Because we want to draw others to the light. We don't want to leave them to die in darkness. And that's what verse 17 means by the Lord's will. Understanding the Lord's will does not mean, is it God's will for me to marry this person? Is it his will for me to accept this job or make this investment? Those might all be legitimate things for us to wonder about and pray about. But according to this passage, the Lord's will is that we don't rest easy with any hints of sin in our lives. His will for you and me is that we fill our lives with goodness, righteousness, and truth. So we will lead others out of darkness. That pleases our God. That's his will for us. And here's something else that pleases him. It pleases him when we sing the truth. It celebrates God's goodness. But before we get to singing, verse 18 gives us a very interesting contrast. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Getting drunk is among the sins we are to leave behind as God's people. But why is it included here? Well, for many people, it's how you celebrate. That was the case in the city of Ephesus when Paul was writing to these believers. It was standard in the culture of that time, and very little has changed today. For many people today, a proper celebration involves getting the beers in. And then, once you've got plenty in, doing the things people do when they're drunk. That's summed up here in the word debauchery. 
So why does Paul bring this up? He brings it up to show us a better way to celebrate. He wants us to understand the kind of celebration that pleases God. We don't celebrate by getting full of wine. We celebrate because we're full of something else. God's Holy Spirit. This phrase, be filled with the Spirit, has caused lots of debate. What does it mean? Don't we already have the Holy Spirit? The short answer is yes, we do. Earlier in this letter, we've been told Christians are a temple made out of living stones in which God lives by his Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says nothing here about how to get the Spirit. He assumes we have the Spirit. But what Paul is about to do is show what a life filled with the Spirit looks like. In these final verses of our passage, he's going to show how people celebrate when they're filled with the Spirit. Next time, he'll show what a marriage looks like when the husband and wife are filled with the Spirit. Then he'll show what children are like when they're filled with the Spirit, what fathers are like, what slaves and masters are like when they're filled with the Spirit. So when we read here in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, we're not to stop and wonder what that means. We're to read on and find out what it means. And the first thing it means is that our celebrations are very different from the celebrations of people who don't know Christ. Those celebrations are often controlled by alcohol and they often lead to debauchery. Our celebrations are controlled by God's Holy Spirit and the Spirit leads us to sing. We sing for two reasons according to these verses. First, we sing to remind each other of the truth. In verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. It's hard to find any clear distinction between those three. I think they're being used pretty interchangeably to refer to songs that tell the truth about God. Who He is, what He has done, and what He has promised to do. The words we sing matter because the words we sing stick with us like nothing else does. So they'd better be true words that are going around in our heads. They'd better be biblical words. The Holy Spirit will never lead us to sing songs that contradict what the Bible says. And the speaking to one another is very important here. When you and I sing together, it's not just about me and God enjoying each other. We're bringing one another back to the truth when we sing. We celebrate the truth and we relearn the truth together. We're not supposed to be oblivious to everyone else. Some of us come filled with sadness or doubt or despair or pride. And we need our brothers and sisters to sing the good news back into our hearts again. So none of us can cop out of this by saying, I don't like to sing. The rest of us need you to sing. Now, granted, we might not want to hear a solo from you. You certainly wouldn't want a solo from me. But we need your voice, joining with all of our voices as we celebrate the truth together. We sing then to remind each other of the truth, and Paul says we sing to thank God. So we sing not just to one another, this is not just only a horizontal thing. It's vertical too. Our singing is an offering up to God. 
But even then, we give that offering of praise together. Not as isolated individuals who are doing our own thing in our own little zone. So that's what these verses are about. But it's equally important to notice why they're here. Because for some of us, these verses might seem out of place. We might be wondering, in the midst of these big points about avoiding sin and committing to the light, why include something so minor as singing? Others of us might react differently. We might be thinking, finally, we get to the bit about worship. Why did it take so long? Whichever reaction you or I lean to, these verses are here to challenge us. If our reaction is, why bother with something so insignificant as singing, then we need to stop and consider what singing is. Singing is an emotional activity. We sing about what we love. Just ask football fans. Singing is an emotional activity, and God wants us to be emotionally engaged with Him. If you don't believe that just based on these verses, believe it based on the song that God put right in the middle of our Bible. 150 psalms celebrating God and longing for more of God. Thirsting after Him. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards asked the question, why does the Bible call us to sing? Why not just speak about the truth? Why not just speak our thanks? And Edwards' answer to the question was, the Bible calls us to sing because singing moves our affections. It stirs us up. Here in verse 19, Paul says, make music from your heart to the Lord. He's telling us a life that pleases God is a life where our affections are involved, our emotions. God wants you and I to engage with him in the very deepest place of our being. That pleases him. A cold, emotionless orthodoxy does not please him. The kind of life where we do and say the right things, but our hearts are like dead rocks. And this is not about personality. This is not telling us we all have to become hyper-demonstrative people. We're not all the same, and that's perfectly okay. But if you and I want to please our God, we need warm hearts. And if we don't have warm hearts, we need to seek warm hearts. And that involves a commitment to celebrate God's truth in song. Giving thanks to Him in song. Singing both expresses emotion and it stirs up emotion. And that's why God calls us to sing. When his truth impacts our hearts, God is pleased. But this passage as a whole also has a challenge for those of us who think engaging our emotions is the only thing involved in pleasing God. These verses on singing come after sections on avoiding sinful deeds and pursuing good deeds. At the very least, that tells us God doesn't just care about how enthusiastically we sing and how emotional we get. A life that pleases Him will be just as concerned to do what's right, whether we feel like it or not. 
But we can all agree, I hope, on this. For God's people, singing his truth and his praises is not an optional extra. It is part of a life that pleases him. Because he wants our hearts as well as our deeds. And as we read on in the Bible, we discover that for all of eternity, we will be singing the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The book of Revelation tells us heaven is filled with song. The presence of God moves us to sing. It draws song out of us. So as we meet in his name here on earth, with his Holy Spirit among us, we will sing. We'll sing old songs, we'll sing new songs, but always songs that are full of the truth and full of thanksgiving. In just a moment, we're going to close with a new song that is full of timeless truth. But first, let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We need your help because we confess to you now that our hearts grow cold. Our light grows dim. And so often, there is more than just a hint of sin in our lives. And so we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he comes to help us in our weakness. And we ask that by your Spirit, you will deepen our hatred of sin in all of its forms. Help us persevere in the fight against sin. And by your Spirit, increase our love for your light, for goodness, righteousness, and truth. Make those things more and more beautiful to us. Show us more and more of their beauty. And stir up our hearts to sing your grace. You have poured out your love on us freely. You have sealed us for the day of redemption by your grace. And now we want to live lives that please you. We commit ourselves to that in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the notable things about our passage this morning, which we didn't pause to say much about, but one of the notable things when we read it is, this passage has a focus on all three members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A life that pleases God will honor him as the three in one. And our last song does that. It's the song that we heard earlier, King of Kings. So in praise of our God, and as a way of speaking the truth to one another, let's join in singing this together. Sing in you. 
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.